Dr. Grant Brenner is a psychiatrist, therapist, consultant, psychoanalyst, a disaster mental health responder, author, and speaker. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Grant. Uh, thanks, George. Good, good to be back, and thanks for having me on again. Yeah, glad to have you back on. Refresh our memory, even though it hasn't been that long. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, why you do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I wanted to do this from a young age. I wanted to be a scientist and a psychoanalyst uh, or a shrink, as people say. Um, you know, and I and and here I am um, a few decades later. My interest was peaked at a young age in psychology, philosophy, as well as science. And so as a psychiatrist I and trained as a psychoanalyst, I can cover bases. Um, I got into disaster work uh, a little bit before 9-11. Um, and I'm currently on the board of Vibrant Emotional Health that runs the 988 crisis line for suicide and mental health crisis, as well as um, a program called the Crisis Emotional Care Team, where we do, we are an interdisciplinary team um, that does disaster mental health response. Um, and I'm on the board of Languages of Care, uh, and we translate different mental health resources for crises and disasters into multiple languages that was started by my colleague, Sandra Koifman and his, and his colleagues after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In my writing, I talk about relationships and personal development in a, a few different books that I've co-authored. And most recently, I'm working on a project with Sandra Nishizaki, Marsha Chinichian, and James Delaneve. Um, I hope I got your name right, James looking at how Generation Z's attachment style influences participation in the workplace and how managers can work better across generations. Well, I appreciate that. So we're having this conversation on August 24th. Um, obviously, we're um, Maui has had the wildfire and um, going through the process of disaster relief there. So I was hoping that we could talk about your work as a mental health responder um, in regard to disaster. Um, there's so much, obviously. And so I, I would love to hear when when somebody like you enters the equation, how does that kind of the steps of, of, of disaster relief, how does that work? Yeah. Well, there's two things, you know, to think about first uh, before going into detail. One is that although there are certain similarities among disasters, we really highlight that if you've been to one disaster, you've been to one disaster. Every hmm. disaster is unique, although some principles carry forward. Um, the, the other thing is that um, it's quite different to be local and working as one of the affected population than to approach an affected area from another place. And that factor um, varies so much from location to location. So it's quite different to think about um, when I went to uh, Baton Rouge after Katrina than when we consulted in Mumbai after the shootings or Sri Lanka after the tsunami or working with Japanese people educationally so there's many, many different you know, permutations. Generally speaking, we have to be very adaptable in disaster mental health, although we follow kind of a general um, set of guidelines. The first thing we do is assess and triage what, what, if anything, can we do and at what stage. One thing we really want to avoid doing is um, being in sort of imperialism, like coming in and trying to impose 
a way of working. Uh, we have to really be respectful that the community has its own resources. Um, and, and really the idea is to empower communities over time. Um, in disaster mental health, we're not generally coming in to provide clinical treatment, for example. And the analogy to an individual patient is like a consult. So it's more like we would consult for some period of time and then try when we, when we withdraw to you know, leave those groups stronger and better equipped. In the case of the Maui fires, we have a very senior colleague there, Dr. Leslie Keys, who is uh, an award-winning uh, pioneer in disaster psychiatry. And so, um, you know, we're supporting her with some materials um, that she's using for local trainings, but, but by and large, right now, we don't have a strong role to play there. Um, but we're fortunate that there's local expertise and someone who can organize them. In other situations, we might come in and help organize and do trainings. Um, we worked with uh, Afghan refugees on military bases stateside and provided a lot of organizational consulting, as well as training in disaster mental health principles. And then, you know, some um, guidance on how to bridge certain cultural gaps that you might see. Um, so it's hi highly variable. Um, I think with Maui, there's a lot of specific factors um, that I'm not as familiar with, but, you know, which I'm reading about. Um, and, you know, we may or may not become more involved as the acute phase uh, kind of settles down into more of a um, recovery phase and the impact phase um, settles down into an adaptation and then uh, recovery and hopefully growth phase. I don't know that I would have. Uh, it makes sense when you say when you, if you've been to one disaster, you've been to one disaster and that it makes sense now that I hear it. Um, I'm a person that likes frameworks and protocols, but, you know, that's that's just, you know, just because I like that doesn't mean that the disaster is going to need that. In fact, quite the opposite. You just need to be able to adapt and provide what's 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 needed, necessary and useful. Yeah. So, I mean, there are frameworks that, you know, that we use and within those frameworks, it's, you know, the mathy term is a complex adaptive system. And so, you know, over the last couple of years, sparked by actually as early in 2020, early in 2020, I, I co-chair a committee on disaster trauma and global health with the group for the advancement of psychiatry. Um, and so we were meeting for a spring 2022 meeting. Sorry, I'm getting my years mixed up because the whole COVID thing is kind of like hazy sure. in terms of it affects your sense of time. I call that the lost years or the dissociated years. It was in March of 2020. We were meeting and the pandemic was was just, you know, um, really becoming obvious to everyone. And though I, I had anticipated back in January, I remember saying to a friend, this is going to be really bad. And he said, don't be so dark. Um it was more like being prepared. Um, that's a big part of disaster mental health is, is being clear-eyed about what you're dealing with. Denial um, can be comforting. Avoidance can be comforting. Um, so in that March of 2020, our, our committee was meeting, um, I want to say, you know, I don't remember whether it was in person or virtual, which is really strange. And the wildfires in California were just hitting. And we said, you know, we need a model that accounts for like multiple overlapping events that occur at different times mm -hmm. and have a different time course. And some of them may be a single impact event, like, you know, an earthquake, though earthquakes can have aftershocks, or some of them may be rolling disasters like a pandemic or, or wildfires, which we just know are just going to keep coming and coming. 
Um, and so we, we developed a chronic cyclical disasters model um, that now is available. Um, if people want to look at it, it's chronic cyclical disasters.info. This was developed through Vibrant, the group for the advancement of psychiatry and a decision point healthcare systems. Um, so coming back to that question, yeah, there, there are frameworks and that's true in medicine. If you're a surgeon and you're going to, you know, someone has uh, appendicitis and they need to have their appendix removed. Yeah. You know how to remove an appendix. And, and I did general surgery for two years, you know, back in the day. Um, still, you don't know what you're going to get. Even if you have really good imaging studies, when you open up, when you open up someone's belly and you see what's actually there, then you have to respond to that situation. And so there's a lot of principles of sort of emergency medicine that are part of disaster mental health. Um, so that balance between knowing what to expect and being prepared and then being prepared for the unexpected is the, is the critical harmony. That makes a lot of sense. Chronic cyclical disaster. That is a, that's a lot of letters right there, Grant. CCDM. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what are, what are some character, what are some characteristics of somebody who is successful in this role? Obviously you need to be calm and be a good communicator. You have to be well-trained. Um, you have to be able to think in terms of systems as well as individuals and groups. Um, you have to be able to step back and you have to be able to step in, um, you know, depending on the role. So if we have, you know, our volunteer cadre isn't necessarily involved in running responses. I've been involved in direct response as well as in planning and implementation. Um, if you're a disaster responder, there's, there's many groups one can volunteer with, you know, the Red Cross, our crisis emotional care team. Um, there's an organization called National Volunteer Organizations Active in Disasters, a lot of letters, NVOAD. Um, so there are a lot of volunteer organizations, there's Citizen Corps, there's World Cares. So there's, there's plenty of ways to volunteer as both a professional um, as a, and as a layperson. Um, so when we just have our uh, kind of clinician volunteer. They're trained in disaster mental health response. And often we'll be doing a kind of consultation and triage with individuals and families. Um, sometimes uh, for a psychiatrist, we don't prescribe medications. You know, people have a lot of conceptions about what psychiatry is nowadays. In disasters, we don't go around medicating people. Um, if there's someone who doesn't have their medication and is starting to get into trouble, um, we might provide them with a short-term um, supply of medications and try to help bridge them to a referral. I encountered that numerous times in, in shelters in Katrina where people um, didn't have like antipsychotic medications and were starting to show signs of psychosis. And if you can imagine having one individual, one person who's becoming psychotic in um, you know, an auditorium with 100 beds in it, it's really important to the whole system to help manage that person. Or another example would be someone with uh, a traumatic reaction with underlying personality problems. They don't need to be medicated, um, but they do need someone to provide psychosocial support, both at the moment to help de-escalate them, but also to train the staff who's going to stay on to help manage those situations. 
because those staff, um, again, I'll use Katrina as an example, may not be mental health professionals. Many of them were like retired oil workers and they'd expected to be involved for like a week maybe. And now it's going on three or four weeks. And so we also might provide training. And so our typical volunteer might do all of those things, um, often with guidance from afar. Another principle that we have is we always work with at least a buddy um, because the impact on you know the the volunteer can be can be considerable. I can only imagine being in your shoes, just thinking about in that fictitious auditorium, whatever it might be, where there's hundreds of people who are you don't know. Maybe there's a quarter of them or a percentage that have existing mental health issue problems or conditions and then a lot of people that don't but are experiencing them because of what's happened and trying to manage through all that would be would certainly be a lot um you have to remember that most people are resilient and people with chronic mental health conditions often when there is a crisis actually are quite stable hmm. um you know because their past experience and has you know, has helped them develop those skills to, to be sort of calm through a crisis. And I think so it's, it's not like, you know, there's dozens and dozens of people decompensating. Most people sort of um, don't. And in general, though, there's a risk of kind of mass panic. Usually that doesn't happen. Um, that is also about what's called risk communication, which is how experts and um, not just experts, but also community leaders and people who are running shelters communicate information to help prevent rumors and to prevent things from getting too heated up. In um, refugee village that I worked in, because of social media, uh, what was happening real time on the ground in Afghanistan, people were looking constantly at live video feeds um, and often had people you know, left at home and were seeing atrocities and sharing it with each other. And you can't tell people don't do that at all, um, but you can offer guidance on how much um, to to sort of regulate that type of activity and, you know, to work with people where they are, you know, with what they need to do. Um, so, you know, while it, it can sound sort of overwhelming, you know, you de you develop um, a skill set. It's, it's like being a traumatologist. So, you know, you you, re you remain calm and, and that helps a lot. Also, a lot of what we do is really very basic psychological first aid. Um, oftentimes just meeting basic physical needs is the most important mental health thing. Um, and so, you know, it's not typically that we're going in and doing sort of some intense therapy, but we are having a kind of a therapeutic influence um, at different levels. So, how how do you position? I, I, I'm I'm not sure what the right what the right question is. I'm sure that there are people that raise their hand and say, "I would like to speak with somebody." Then there's people that are going the opposite way because they're just not interested, and then there's the group in the middle that could probably benefit from a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I want to highlight that most people don't have a pathological response. It's mainly normal reactions, and yeah, a lot of people. Um, when they find out that we're there, you know, and this happens to me in my day-to-day -day life, to be <laughs> honest, I, I think of it as like a cocktail party phenomenon, right? People ask me, oh, what do you do? And then people will open up, or I was I was actually at the bank the other day, um, co-signing for uh, the film festival that we're working on that's coming up on mental health, which we, we can talk about. Um, 
And, you know, the, the banker started talking to me about what was it about. And he said his son had tried to take his own life back in college. And he said he came from uh, a very challenging culture where, you know, his own personality was like, he doesn't get like that. He doesn't quite understand it. Um, but he said, yes, yeah, since the pandemic, mental health has become very popular. And so that's a good example of what you're describing. People will casually just start talking. And so what we usually do is we usually just hang around. We don't usually like set up an office, though we'll have like an office space if someone needs a formal consultation. A lot of what we do is just hanging out. Um, sometimes in the past, though, I don't know that I like this term very much because it, it, it has a funny sound to it, but we, we sometimes had referred to it as active lurking, um, which speaks to the sense that we don't want to stigmatize people by being like, hey, I'm a psychiatrist, let's talk. So usually we situate ourselves and, and kind of just, um, you know, chat and, and people open up by and large. And then there are people who are like very an sort of anti. I encountered that with journalists in Mumbai who were kind of tough. Like, why do we why do we need, you know, these, you know, Westerners here, which is totally valid. And then there are other folks who are like, hey, I want to learn a lot. What can you teach us? And then, you know, we said, well, I don't know how much I can teach you because, you know, it's more like you have all this expertise. But here, here's some things that here's how we think about it. Um, you know, and medically, we also want to be careful not to impose Western diagnoses on both other cultures as well as as well as when there's nothing pathological going on. Right. So we're not looking like to diagnose everyone with PTSD or anything like that. We're, we're really there to give people a chance to use basic tools. And, and sometimes that is is they'll talk about things. And, and certainly in, in every situation I've been in, people have told me what they've lived through. Um, but we're not looking to, you know, process trauma. It's mainly supportive, uh, but we are looking to make it so that if people really are uh, in need of medical or psychiatric care, then, you know, they have access to that in a way which isn't, um, you know, pressured. So it's, it's a delicate balance. Active lurking is not a great term, but it's, it's really appropriate. Yeah, I prefer the cocktail party approach. Yeah. Um, or sort of like a social butterflies is how I started thinking about it in, in the refugee villages. It's more like it's more like being, you know, kind of like a friendly person who's around. Um, yeah, lurking just doesn't sound right. <laughs> I didn't coin the term. But and so the, it doesn't surprise me at all that you are. You are present, you are having a water, a coffee, you're available. Hey, what are you working on? And oh, by the way, so then it just gives people the spontaneous opportunity or the, the serendipitous opportunity to ask a question or to 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 engage instead of them walking up to your booth or, or, or into your waiting area, which uh, not a very comfortable thing. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. But then there's yeah, just there's going to be like a medical area with a, with someone who provides those formal services. And usually not usually we'll always identify ourselves. Hey, I'm right. My name is Grant Brenner. I'm a psychiatrist. I work with vibrant emotional health. We're here to provide support. And then a lot of times, you know, you quickly see like where, oh, you're a psychiatrist. You, you know, are you analyzing me? Right. Um, or you, you think I'm crazy. What do you think? So, um, yeah. you know, and it depends on the group. Um, cause some, some groups to people, um, not, not to overgeneralize, but you know, some, as you, as you said earlier, 
in, in particularly some professions are less sort of psychologically open. It also may be that they are wary of any kind of psychologist. I'm not a psychologist, but any kind of mental health, because in certain like first responder groups, uh, particularly uh, people, you know, who are who are uniformed services or law enforcement, um, there can be a problem with psychologists because if they're sort of afraid that they'll be deemed unfit for duty, they can be taken out of the field. And so we make it clear that that's not our role either. We're outside of that system. Um, obviously, so, so many layers. We're not, we, are, we are looking to prevent harm, you know. So if if anyone, you know, in a disaster situation was, you know, aggressive or unstable, we would try to prevent them from hurting anyone. But we're not there to, um, you know, take away uh, guns or put people behind the desk. Right, right. It's like from those old cop shows where, yeah, you get taken off, put on desk duty, Grant. Wow. So many layers from a cultural standpoint yeah. and everything that you've been talking about. Um, fascinating. So yeah, exactly. It's incredibly complicated. How, how long is, well, is there an actually training program for this for, for, or is it just based on your experience and we're going to get you up to speed? There's a lot of different training programs. I'm actually uh, <laughs> wrapping up. I'm chuckling because it, it's been it's been a bear, but I'm co-editing a second edition of Disaster Psychiatry, Readiness, Evaluation, and Treatment. And one of the chapters that we're working on is, is on disaster education. There's many, many trainings. So if you volunteer with different programs, they'll have their own training. So Red Cross has its own training, Crisis Emotional Care Team. We have our own training. A lot of times when there is an event, though, people will spontaneously volunteer and we'll do what's called a just-in-time training. And that might be a few hours. A lot of times it's digital now, so people can do it offline. We did just-in-time trainings at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with a large group of Ukrainian mental health responders. Um, Canadian uh, Disaster Psychiatry Association has uh, an online training. And recently, the, um, I, the, um, the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress through the Committee on the Psychiatric Dimensions of Disaster, um, released a free eight-hour online training through the American Psychiatric Association offered by um, Kurt West and Joshua Morgan Stern, who are both um, you know, highly, highly um, qualified and accomplished colleagues in this area. So there's lots of different trainings available, but there isn't like a standardized training. And there's also many academic programs in disaster management though they don't usually focus on mental health. Um, one thing that was interesting, I presented, we presented the chronic cyclical disasters model multiple times over the last several months. Um, so I presented at ENVOAD, the National Volunteer Organizations Active in Disasters that was in St. Louis. And there are hundreds of organizations there. And the majority of them focus on something operational or logistical, like providing clothing or food or you know management, that kind of thing. Um, it's understood that mental health is important, but it's not as prominent. And so my talk was was well received and well attended. And and one of the first years, I think, where there's really been as much interest in mental health. And, you know, to that point, COVID that the banker made, you know, mental health issues have been gaining attention for a long time, but COVID really accelerated it on many levels. There's also been, you know, a, a proliferation of 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 companies which are offering mental health services much more accessibly. 
and rising rates of suicide. The CDC reported that the estimated suicide um, toll in 2022 is 47,000 plus. And the last time they checked a few years ago was 44,000. And so it's rising as um, a, a source of mortality, particularly among younger adults, but across the boards too. Um, and then this 988 line, you know, was uh, made available. There were always hotlines, but now there's a, a three-digit number. And not that many Americans have heard of it. I think it's important people like know that it's there. Um, but over time, like 911, you know, people will um, will know what, what what who to call when there's a, a mental health crisis. Got it. Well, Grant, thank you so much for coming back on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage? Uh, my website is grantHbrennerMD.com, and I'm on social media uh, with at GrantHbrennerMD. If people are interested in the film festival, we're going to be screening. We have over 100 movies that we're sorting through and judging right now. That's the Urban Dreams Mental Health Film Festival. And uh, I invite people to reach out and let me know if you have any questions or comments. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed as much as I did, show grant your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to grantHbrennerMD.com. It's G-R-A-N-T-H-B-R-E-N-N-E-R-M-D.com. And also check out the Urban Dreams Mental Health Film Festival and find Grant on social media. I'll link all those in the notes of the show. Thanks again, Grant. Thanks, George. Until next time, remember, do your part by doing your best.